All right, testing one, two, three. You got it. I, I actually didn't like that one because it made my ear kind of do this, and I felt like you know Mike Tyson had bit my ear or something. Uh, okay, how's that for a great start? Anyway, uh, what I was going to say is that uh, with with traveling and all that, my wife doesn't really go to too many things other than if I'm doing something on marriage and I ask her to come to make me look good, you know? Um, but, uh, but this is one gig that uh, she does not want to miss because this, this fuels us. And, uh, and we do appreciate the opportunity. We appreciate how you guys love on us uh, when we come and I'm getting all sentimental and and ain't nobody got time for that tonight. But, uh, but I, I really do appreciate uh, the spirit of this place, uh, the, the way that you come uh, to actually receive from the Lord. Uh, and, and that just, it, it thrills, thrills my heart. And uh, so, uh, man, tonight, uh, I hope that God will give us ears to hear and, and eyes to see. Um, you know, we've been talking the last several nights about uh, the presence of God on our lives, uh, the power of God on our lives. And of course, we've been looking at uh, this whole uh, showdown between Ezekiel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the grove. And, and, and we've seen some uh, pretty practical things about the, God's presence and power on our lives. But tonight, I want to I wanna take that same basic theme and I want to take us somehow <laughs> through the pages of Scripture, I want to take us to a place. And the place that I'd love for all of us to go tonight is the place where Jesus went the night before he died. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 36 says, Then cometh Jesus unto them unto a place a place called Gethsemane. And there's a few things that I, that I, I want to show you about this place in, in just a minute. But before we actually get into that, I, I want us to recognize tonight that this place that Matthew 26 and verse 36 talks about, this is a place that Jesus was very familiar with. Luke 22 and verse 39 tells us that it was a place that he was wont to go, W-O-N-T. He was wont to go. In other words, it was a place that he was accustomed to going. But I want you to realize that as he enters into this place that's described in Matthew 26 verses 36 through 46, as he enters into this very familiar place, on this night, it would be different. 
Because on this night, Jesus is coming into this place to face the most significant battle of his entire human existence. Do you hear that? This is intense, what's happening here. Three and a half years previous to this night, as he began his public ministry, you'll remember in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 8, it lets us know that he also went into a place, a place where he would go up into a high mountain to fight an intense battle at that time with Satan. But on this night that we're talking about, he enters into a different place. He enters into a garden and he enters into it to fight a different battle. The battle between his will and the Father's will. The, the infamous battle that every human must fight. The battle between my will and thy will. And may I say from the very outset tonight that every person that's in this room tonight or is listening in some other location Every one of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior is like Jesus in the fact that we too are very familiar with this place. Because this place is representative of our daily struggle and the very essence of our battle with the flesh, again, the battle of my will versus thy will. And like I said, though our Lord is very accustomed to this place, God has so orchestrated the timing and the circumstances of Christ's life so that on this night, as he comes into this very familiar place, I want you to notice at the end of verse uh, Matthew 26 and verse 37 that it says that our Lord began to be sorrowful and very heavy. But do recognize, y'all, that as it says here, that this is just the beginning. But by the time the Lord can explain how he's feeling and what he's going through to Peter, James, and John in verse 38, in just that short period of time, he's gone from being sorrowful to exceeding sorrowful. And even beyond that, as Jesus goes on to describe, he said that he had become sorrowful even unto death. In other words, so sorrowful that he felt that he would die of a broken heart. The word Luke used to describe what he was going through in Luke 22 and verse 44 is that he was in agony. 
And it goes on to say that the internal anguish that he was going through was so intense that blood begins to ooze from the pores of his skin and blood is literally dropping on the ground. The way that Mark said it in Mark 14 and verse 33 is that he was sore amazed. (laughs) He was overwhelmed. And again, very heavy. And the battle was so intense that notice verse 34, it was his soul that it was sorrowing to the point that as he anguishes in prayer, verse 35 says that he fell on the ground. And and humanly, y'all, It all becomes so overpowering. Luke 22 and verse 43 says that the father contracts an angel from heaven to strengthen the Lord Jesus Christ, mind you. To strengthen him in his distress. Listen, do you understand the the vehemency and the determination torment that the Bible is describing about what is happening to our Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane that that night. And again I say, our Lord was very accustomed to this place. And, And yet on this night, this place has become an incredibly different place because the battle that he would fight on this night would change the course and destiny of his life within a 24-hour period. And as most of the people in this room already recognize, what was happening in that garden that night would also change the course and destiny of history. And my dear brothers and sisters, the reason that I'm wanting to walk all of us into the biblical description of this place tonight is because the fact is, and I I, want to make sure that everybody's listening very carefully to this. In the life of every person that you have ever known, that you've ever heard about, that you have ever read about, every person that you have ever known that God has used to accomplish something significant and or powerful. They all have something in common. Every last person that God has ever used in church history can take you back to their Gethsemane. Now, they, they may not call it by that name, but I guarantee you, if you were to say to them, hey, tell me about your Gethsemane. 
you wouldn't need to explain what you meant. Because just that terminology, they would understand exactly what you were talking about. And they would be able to tell you about God so orchestrating the circumstances of their life. And God so orchestrating the timing of those circumstances. And God so orchestrating the weight of those circumstances. And God so orchestrating the impact of those circumstances. So that like our Lord, it was a time... When they became very heavy and sorrowful, which led to them being exceeding sorrowful, which led to them being sorrowful even to the point that they thought they would die of a broken heart. Listen, every last one of them would be able to bring you back to a time in their life that they, though they thought they had understood previous to that time, though they thought they had understood the battle between my will and thy will, this would be the time when the battle would be so intense that it would forever define and encapsulate that battle for them. Because as I said, this would be their Gethsemane. And by the time they'd come out of it, just like with the Lord Jesus Christ, it would be a time that changed the course and the direction and the destiny of their lives. And the reason that I wanted to end the evening sessions of All Church Retreat 2019 talking about this is because this will be a battle that every believer will face at some time in their life. And what we do with our Gethsemane will determine to what degree we live, as we've been talking about for the last several nights, the degree to which we live with the presence and the power of God on our lives. The fact is, y'all, that there, there comes a, a time in each of our lives when we walk into a, a period of life that we will remember for the rest of our lives as that time when we walked into the Garden of Gethsemane with our Lord and we entered like no other time in our life into the fellowship of his suffering. And through the, the, the scripture tonight, I, I'd like to walk us into this place, this garden of Gethsemane. And, and, and notice as we enter into this place together, no, notice first of all the significant fact that it was a garden. And the reason that's significant is, I don't know if this has ever really dawned on, on you. Uh, maybe this is the biggest no-brainer in the history of earth. I don't know. But listen to this. Man's first home was in a garden. 
And in this garden, God chose to create man. And in this garden, God chose to enter into an intimate, personal love relationship with his creation. And yet, it was in this garden that man chose his own way. Man chose self over God. Man chose the pleasures of sin over the pleasure of an intimate, personal love relationship with the God that had created him. And interestingly enough, not only was man's first home in a garden, but according to Revelation chapter 22, man's final home will also be in a garden where the tree of life will bear its fruit. Check it out. Though paradise was lost in this garden, paradise will be restored in this garden. But listen, in order for that to happen, between this garden... And that garden, do you know where I'm going? There had to be another garden. Because of what happened in this garden, for us to ever be in that garden, there had to be this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Unless anybody think I'm maybe making too much of this garden... Let me just clear the air and say unashamedly and very dogmatically that without the cross where Jesus shed his blood and gave his life, there is no victory for any of us. But as we're going to see tonight, the victory of The cross was actually won here in this garden. And I realize that by and large, this is a group of people that understands for sure the centrality of the cross in living out who we are in Christ. But could I remind all of us tonight that perhaps the most practical and far-reaching reality of the cross is found in a little verse that's tucked away in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 10 where Paul says that we are, oh listen now, always bearing about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that, so that, the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body that we might experience his presence and his power. And to really get our minds wrapped around what the Holy Spirit is trying to say in this monumental verse, the the point is, is really this. 
it's going to be on the screen, but don't, don't lose your self in the moment right now. We'll send you the PowerPoint. Listen, what this verse is saying to us is that the cross was the instrument of Christ's death that brought us life. And now that it has, he intends that the cross be the instrument of our death that brings him life. Are you seeing that? So that it is his life through our death that is being made manifest through our body because as we experience what this verse, 2 Corinthians 4.10 calls the dying of the Lord Jesus, and I want to make sure that you understand that he has described for us the dying of the Lord Jesus in the two previous verses. Verse 8 says that the actual dying of the Lord Jesus is those times when we are experiencing trouble on every side. It is those times where the circumstances of our life have us just completely perplexed. And verse 9 goes on to say, it's those times when we're being persecuted seemingly from every direction and those times when life has left us just utterly and completely cast down. And again, don't miss it, that it is those four things in verses 8 and 9 that comprise the dying of the Lord Jesus in verse 10. And the point that Paul's making here is that when we're experiencing that dying process of the Lord Jesus in these bodies of flesh, It's then that Christ's life is actually lived through our body. So as Galatians 2.20 says, it's no longer I living my life, but Christ. How about those four words, y'all? Not I, but Christ. As Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14 says, it's, it's then that we live practically in two glorious realities. We are hanging on that cross. And as we look over to our right, we see the world with all of its glitz and glamour is crucified unto me. And I look and I see that I am crucified to the world. In other words, the world sees me the same way I see it. It rejects me. It despises me. It is insistent upon my death. And when that happens... It is then, my brothers and sisters, 
when we are living with Christ's presence and power on our lives. And, and I think that most of us recognize that about the cross. But again, as I, I mentioned, what I want to submit to you tonight is, and I don't think that most Christians recognize this, is that though we have been called to live in the victory of the cross, the victory of the cross isn't actually won on the cross. Because the battle between my will and thy will isn't fought on the cross. It's not fought at Calvary. The battle is fought in Gethsemane. And sure, Jesus suffered physically on the cross, no, no doubt. But when he's on that cross, have you ever noticed that you don't see the, the internal suffering in Christ's spirit when he's on the cross like you do when he's in Gethsemane? Because that was when he was feeling the weight of being troubled on every side and so perplexed that he's sweating drops of blood. The persecution has come upon him and has literally caused him to be cast down and he has fallen on the ground. And, and again, I wanna, I wanna say to you tonight, the victory of the cross is won in Gethsemane, it's one in the garden. And that's the same way that it's gonna be in our life. So please don't miss the significance, first of all, that this place was a garden. And then notice next that it was Gethsemane. It was the garden of Gethsemane. And though it was certainly called Gethsemane before Jesus experienced what he experienced on that night, do you understand that there could not be a more descriptive name for this place than Gethsemane? Because the name of this place is, is of such significance to what actually happened, it couldn't possibly be coincidence. Because you see, the, the name Gethsemane comes from two words. First of all, the word geth, which means press. And secondly, the word shemen, which means oil. And so obviously, the name Gethsemane means oil press. Okay, now, just hold on to that for a second. Gethsemane means, would you say it? Oil press. And interestingly enough, the Garden of Gethsemane, the oil press, just happens to be located where? On the... It was located on the Mount of Olives. Okay, do you understand the Garden of Gethsemane was actually a garden of olive trees? And to really understand what's happening here, it's important to understand that 
the oil, listen, the oil in the fruit that came from the olive tree just happened to serve some pretty significant purposes throughout the Bible. I'm going to give them to you. Listen carefully because we'll be coming back to these at least two times. Exodus chapter 30 verses 23 through 25 tells us that this olive oil was actually anointing oil. Listen, to anoint the children of Israel as holy unto the Lord. In fact, at the end of verse 25, would you just look at those last three words? It refers to it as holy anointing oil. In Exodus chapter 40 and verse 9, we find that olive oil was used to hallow or to sanctify and consecrate the vessels in the tabernacle. And of course, the tabernacle was the dwelling place of God on the earth and the vessels that comprised the dwelling place of God were hallowed by this oil. 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 1 in other places lets us know that olive oil was used to anoint kings for service. Exodus 29 and verse 7 lets us know that it was also used to anoint priests for service. Leviticus 24 and verse 2 tells us that it was used to provide light so that the lamps of the children of Israel could burn continually. I, now listen, I, I know that that came quick and it sounds you know, rather technical, but I think if you look at that list, you'd have to agree with me that the oil from the fruit of the olive tree served some pretty doggone significant purposes in God's dealing with the children of Israel. Amen? But don't miss this now. For the oil in the fruit of that olive tree to be used for its biblical purpose. Do you understand that it first had to go through a rigorous process of the oil press? A process that actually included being bruised, beaten, pierced, pressed, and trodden. My brothers and sisters, do you hear those words? And can you already begin to make the biblical connection to our Lord Jesus Christ? Because Isaiah 53 and verse 5 says that he was bruised for our iniquities. Luke 22 and verse 64 talks about how our Lord was beaten. The verse says, and when they had blindfolded him, they struck him in the face and asked him saying, prophesy, who is it that smote thee? 
John 19, verse 34, says that one of the soldiers pierced his side. While Jesus was in the garden, Matthew 26 and verse 37 says, the weight of what was about to happen, listen, not because of the torment of the cross, because there was a torment greater than that. The weight of what was about to happen as he who knew no sin was about to become sin for us. And the first time in Christ's eternal existence, he would be separated from his father. And the reality and the weight of that separation, as we saw before, caused him to begin to be sorrowful and very heavy. And moment by moment in that garden, the heaviness began to press upon him with even greater and greater weight and intensity. And again, as we saw earlier, verse 38 goes on to, to say that Jesus said to Peter and James and John, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. And listen, that's how the weight of what was happening in Gethsemane was pressing upon him without measure. And just like uh, the, that olive in, in the olive press is trodden. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 29 talks about how our Lord was trodden underfoot. And I I ask you tonight, my brothers and sisters, is there anybody in this room that thinks that it is just random coincidence that for our Lord Jesus Christ to serve his purpose in coming to this earth, that he made his way that night into the garden of Gethsemane, the oil press on the mount of olives. Now, obviously, that connection is unbelievably clear, but can you also see the connection to us? Because, again, like the olive in the olive press and like Jesus in the olive press of Gethsemane, do you understand that in order for us to be used to serve our purpose in being on the earth that we too must go through a process where we are bruised and beaten and pierced and pressed and trodden. And it sounds excruciating. And it is excruciating. And yet, it's actually in the process and procedure of our Gethsemane that God's purposes in our life 
are actually realized. Would you listen now? Because it is in the process and procedure of the oil press of our Gethsemane that we receive our anointing, as it were, with holy anointing oil. Because 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1 says, For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Do you understand, y'all? In Gethsemane, we're not thinking lustful thoughts. We're not covetous. As we're suffering in the Gethsemane of our life, we become holy. We cease from sin. And as 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1, we cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit and perfect holiness in the fear of God. And it's also in the process and the procedure of the oil press of our Gethsemane that, listen, as the vessels where the Spirit of God dwells, just like those vessels in the Old Testament tabernacle. We are hallowed. We are sanctified. We are consecrated for the Master's use. And we learn, as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 4 talks about, we learn how to possess our vessel in sanctification and honor. Hello? And we become, as 2 Corinthians 4, 7 talks about, we become God's treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. His presence and his power manifest through us. And it's in this process as 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 21 talks about that we are purged and we become a vessel unto honor, sanctified and made for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. And it's in the process and the procedure of the oil press of our Gethsemane that we receive that full anointing, that Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6, how it calls us, listen, kings and priests unto God. A great verse for the deity of Christ. Kings and priests unto God, the Lord Jesus Christ and his Father whereby we give to him through our lives glory and dominion forever and ever. And it's in the process and procedure of the oil of our Gethsemane that we have the oil as Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15 says to shine as lights 
so that we might burn continually in the midst of the darkness of this world. Listen, y'all. That's why God allows us at some time in our life to experience our Gethsemane. And may I say, not only does he allow it, but he ordains it. I'm not quite ready to land the plane right now, but we are going to begin our descent right now. So put your tray tables up and your seat backs in there folding upright locked position as we just talk for a few more minutes about Paul's Gethsemane. Do you remember Paul's Gethsemane? I, I, I don't have these verses up on the screen. We might have to use our Bible. Would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 for just a minute? And as you're turning there, let me just remind you of the context. Paul is explaining an experience that he had 14 years previous to the writing of this letter. And we see that in verse 2. And, and listen, y'all, are, are you still there even though you're turning? Okay, don't, don't, let's, don't, man, don't, let's don't lose it right now. After for 14 solid years now, he's totally kept his mouth shut about an experience that he had had because he says at the end of verse 2, what had happened is that he was caught up to the third heaven, which Revelation chapter 4 lets us know is the abode of God. And he explains, would you look at verse 4, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. And what he's saying here is that the things that he saw, the things that he heard were so absolutely incredible. He, he says, I mean, it, it would be against the law for me to even try to describe it to you. And again, that's why for 14 years, he's not said a word about this to anyone. And in fact, it was so incredible that through this whole passage, he talks about having had this experience. He describes it in the third person, like it's not even him. He describes it as if it happened to some other man because he didn't want to be held up as some spiritual bigwig or some spiritual superstar because of what God had allowed him to experience. But would you look in the middle of verse 6? He says, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be or that he heareth of me. Okay, and not only did Paul recognize that that might be a major temptation, but listen, God recognized it even more so. And he knew that even though Paul recognized the temptation, that there would be, have to be something that would happen in his life to keep Paul's feet on the ground. And so Paul says in verse 7, unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. 
And I'm submitting to you that this was Paul's Gethsemane. Lest I should be exalted above measure. And let me just tell you, if the apostle Paul of all people was in danger of being proud and and self-confident, let me assure you, it's certainly a major danger for all of us. So, so listen, we all need to be very well aware that the sin of pride lurks around the heart of every single one of us, and there isn't a single one of us, no matter how humble we may appear to be, that is immune from it. In fact, the more spiritual we get, the closer to God we get, the more surrendered we become, the more it'll be a temptation. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is one sin that is more of a threat to those who are surrendered than it is to those who aren't surrendered. That's whack. And that's why Paul says in verse 7, and lest I should be exalted above measure, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. And what's kind of wild is that When it comes to this passage, most believers are more interested in what Paul's thorn actually was than they did do its purpose. The issue wasn't what the thorn was. The issue was the purpose of the thorn. And the purpose was to keep Paul humble. And we're going to see in just a second in verses 9 and 10, it, it was to bring him to weakness. And again, lest we all come through all of this and think that this has no application to us, I think we need to make sure that we understand that God works in all of our lives for that same purpose. He's constantly working in our lives to give us the opportunity to humble ourselves and bring us to the place of choosing obedience so that we can remain in a place of weakness. Are you hearing that, my brothers and sisters? And and when God brought this thing, I think three of us are hearing that. And, And when God brought this thing into Paul's life, his first reaction was the same reaction we typically have when God brings humbling and self weakening situations into our lives. He says in verse six, for this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. Does that sound familiar? And what he does is he prays for it to be removed. And listen now, praying for it to be removed isn't a bad thing. But we gotta be careful with this, this thing of the flesh because it's very possible for us to come before the Lord and be praying about all this humbling ourselves and pray words that are very beautiful and right. But many of us, and I I know this because I know it about me, the words of our prayer are all about humbling ourselves. And the words of our prayer are all about dying. 
But I, I, I know from, for me, and again, maybe you're different, but I know sometimes that as those words are coming off of my lips, the real unspoken prayer of my heart is, but Lord, if it be possible, don't make this too hard. Don't make this too painful. Which is actually to say, Lord, remove everything in my life that's going to make me humble. Or, Lord, I want to be humble. But I want it to be my way. I, I want to be humble without being humbled. And, and would, you, would you listen to Paul at the beginning of this ordeal? God brings this humbling thorn into his life. And, and, and like us, he immediately begins to pray that God would remove it. He prays that he would be delivered out of it. Paul tells us very specifically in verse 8 that he besought the Lord three times, listen, that it might depart from me. And again, that's not necessarily wrong. Listen, sometimes God allows things in our lives just for the purpose of bringing us closer in fellowship with him to bring us to prayer. And maybe with some of those things, it is God's plan to remove it. But we've got to keep in mind the real purpose of prayer isn't to coerce God isn't to coax him into doing something we want or to try to change his mind or change his will. The purpose of prayer is to change us. It is to change our wills. It is to change our minds. It is to change our wants. It is to conform them to his so that he is glorified. And that's the purpose of prayer, that the Father would be glorified. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 14, verse 13? And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do for this purpose, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Listen, the purpose of prayer is the glory of God. And just like Jesus did in the garden, would you listen? As he was becoming obedient unto death, Paul does the same thing here. He prays three specific times that if it would be possible that this cup in this case, this thorn would pass or depart from him. And you may want to note that, that Paul prays and perseveres in prayer just like Jesus taught us until God answered. And you may also want to note that when God did answer, the answer wasn't what Paul asked or wanted. Because remember, he wanted the thing removed. 
But you see, God knew that to really receive the glory that he wanted to receive through this situation, there was something far better for Paul and far more glorifying for himself than removing the thorn. And you know what it was? He gives Paul the blessed promise in verse 9 of receiving all the grace to be able to bear that thorn every moment of every hour of every day for the rest of his life. Jesus spoke to Paul and said, my grace, bro, is sufficient for thee. Please listen now. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. And listen, when Paul understood what was really going on, that this cup wasn't going to pass. You know what his response was? Would you look at the middle of verse 9? Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This is what we've been talking about for the last two nights. How to live our lives with the presence and power of God on them. And it comes through weakness. And Paul got it. And rather than, this, this is just my Lord. Would you look at verse 10? Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. Because I get it, man. All of these things are to bring me to a place of weakness so that his presence and power can be on my life and I can be strong not in my own strength, but in the strength of the Lord. Um, am I doing okay on time? Uh, okay, this is the wrap-up right here. <coughs> um, can I just tell you about my Gethsemane? Um, back in 1999, uh, I had been the pastor of First Baptist Church in New Philly for 11 years at that point. And man, I, 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 I'm just telling you, uh, some of the wonderful things that we experience when we get together, and some of you that experience it in your church, man, back in the 90s, we were just slapping ourselves silly at just how awesome things were going. And so uh, 
KCBT, some of you that are in this room were on a trip. They brought 50 people to our church to teach us about making disciples, and we went all in. Uh, we shut down everything that anybody ever used as an excuse <laughs> to not make a disciple because we were going to say we we're going to keep the main thing the main thing. And, and it was a beautiful thing, and God was opening doors to us all around the world, and uh, there was a, a missionary, an old country boy, uh, that was a missionary to Russia. He was a, a, a spy in the army and uh, was married to the army, lost his wife uh, through the process. She comes home, gets saved. He comes home to try to restore his family. He gets saved and is being discipled in his church. And his pastor says to him, hey, you know, since you were a spy in Russia and you were kind of there under the radar and you spoke the language and nobody knew, have you ever thought that maybe you might be a pretty good missionary there? And so he, he, he was. And so we were going to get connected with him on this, this major evangelistic campaign. And so... We had 105 men that signed up to go on this, this trip. And as you can imagine, for those of you that have ever led a, you know, a, a missions team, 105 people is quite a logistical nightmare. And so this missionary wanted me to come uh, over and, uh, and let's just you know, work out all the details and, and get the, the plan and all of that. And so we're going to the various locations that we were going to go on when the team came. But it's just me and him. And so you know, he, 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 I didn't really know him, and he was you know, kind of getting to know me. And uh, so we're sitting on the train. This is one of those things, y'all, that it's in so indelibly... <laughs> pressed into my brain that I see it like a movie, man. So we're just talking about, you know, what God has been doing in our church in the last decade or so. And, and he, he came to the point where he, he looked at me and he goes, man, I bet you've been through a lot. And as soon as he said it, I knew what he meant. And I said, not yet. But I knew it was coming. And oh, buddy, it came. And I, I don't really want to give you the, the, the details uh, because we, we now live in a day of social media and and all of that, but that, I will just tell you that there were some people that were some Demises in my life that, uh, wow, what they concocted and were spreading was, you know, usually when people are spreading stuff, there's a, a hint of truth in it. Man, this was so far out there that it was just in, it was crazy. And boy, I will tell you, Sherry and I, we found ourselves in a Gethsemane, man. You talk about a brother that was hurt. Man, I, uh, I remember one day I'd have been working in, in the yard all day. Uh, it was kind of an escape, you know what I mean? <laughs> and working in the yard all day and I was 
taking some stuff to the landfill at the end of the day and as I'm driving, you know, and I've been thinking about all of this all day. And, and I started, I, I, I was praying and I said, oh God, man, I feel so alone. And I feel so lonely. I, I'm so hurt. All I've ever tried to do is love these people and wow, the betrayal. The rejection, I, I, I was saying, Lord, I feel like everything on my inside wants to be on my outside. I'm saying, Lord, we please allow this cup to pass from me. And listen, as I began to say that, I went, oh. Lord, I think I just described everything that you went through in Gethsemane. Lord, I think I might be experiencing your sufferings. And all of a sudden, I remember that Philippians 3.10 verse, that I may know him. I had prayed that, man, ever since I had gotten saved that I may know him and the power, his presence and power, the power of the resurrection and not just his sufferings, but the what? The fellowship of his suffering. And I thought, oh my word, I've never, I've quoted the verse, I've preached on the verse, but I never really understood that in the midst of my Gethsemane, it was actually providing an opportunity for me to fellowship with him in a way that I had never been able to fellowship with him. And in the fellowship of that, he was actually conforming me to his death. And my brothers and sisters, what Paul says is I now take pleasure in that. I don't know if I'm quite there. <laughs> Just being honest. But I will tell you, I, back in the day, stop praying that the cup would pass and that what he would do was conform me to his death knowing that it would mean I would need a little more suffering so that the power of the resurrection might come so that I might know him and listen y'all don't let any of that bum you out. <laughs> That's what we want. That's what this life is really all about, is getting us out of the way so that his presence and his power is fully manifest on our lives. Pastor Sam, why don't you come and put a bow on this tonight, if you would.